Thank you, Nate and Brian and others. Open your Bibles with this morning, if you would, in your New Testament, book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Continuing in our series, What Does God Want? We ask that question. Today, the imaginary answer is God was saying, I want you to control yourself. So we're going to talk about self-control and what that is. And it's kind of a thing of mine, uh, this talking about self-control. I don't know if it's because it's an issue in my life. It's something I, I struggle with. My temper, my mouth, my desires, etc. Just like some of you I've observed, we're all alike in this respect. If you watch the media and social media, you see people everywhere struggling and sometimes often losing in their struggle for self-control. People do crazy things, that's the failure of self-control. So we're going to talk about that today. Galatians chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 25 in just a moment. As always, we begin with a word of prayer. We all have people and situations where we need God's touch. We've lost one of all those that we've loved this week, Leslie Brock. We pray for her family, Terry who's here, their sons. Life is unfair. I'll give you a few moments to pray where you're seated. I'll close and we'll look at this passage together. Would you bow with me, please? Father, we come before you this morning with heavy hearts. We've lost people we've loved. We get up and go about our business knowing that some struggle. We ask for your help, Father, for those that struggle. We ask for understanding. We ask for hope. Help us, Father, to trust you in your timing and in the way you work in our lives, things that happen help us to trust that you are in control, to trust that you will make things right in times to come. As always, Father, we know that you are working in people's lives. We acknowledge that. We ask you to continue to work in people's lives here, Work in the lives of those who exercise control over us. Be with those who are servants. Give us comfort and hope, Father. Lord, teach us. Give us strength. And like the one who talked to Jesus, we believe, help our unbelief. Father, thank you for your love for us. It endures forever. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
The ability to control yourself may save your life. True story. Young man, just married. He and his wife got their new house. It was an older house in an old neighborhood. They were just working on their house one day. The doors were propped open. The windows were open. Just doing their thing, making their life. He heard his wife scream. He looked up and out the window, and there was a masked man, black tactical garb, with a black rifle pointed in his face, screaming something. He looked around. He heard his wife screaming. He could see past the individual in the window with a rifle that there were several others in the yard, black rifles all, black tactical outfits, face mask, glasses. They were screaming something. He couldn't make it out. He was in the bathroom working. He had not a weapon in his hand, a scraper. He was doing sheetrock work. But he had his pistol laying on the sink over there. He had his license to carry legally. He says that in that split second, he played all those scenarios. They would shoot him and he would die. He could lunge for his weapon and he might take one with him. Maybe he could get out there and protect his wife from these men who were unidentified. And then in the middle of that, before he could act, in that moment of hesitation, he heard someone outside say, this is the police. He stopped. He was grabbed from behind by another man in technical garb. They drug him out, threw him on the ground, frisked him, did a body search. He saw his wife laying on the floor, screaming and crying, immobilized by fear. This went on for two hours. Finally, he was able to gain some composure. And one of the officers, and then he realized they were officers, they had no insignia on them at all. They explained what had happened. His house was suspected of being a drug house. Remember, I just said they just purchased it. It was used, an older house in an old neighborhood. The policeman explained that the reason there were no neighbors watching is they had cleared the entire neighborhood. They'd been working on this for several days. All the neighbors knew to leave between such and such a time because they had to arrest the bad guys. There was a criminal informant that had told them that the people in this house were cooking drugs. Finally, he was able and allowed to stand. They searched the house, literally took it apart, got up in the attic, went through the basement, removed some panels of sheetrock. Finally, my son-in-law explained they were just moving in. My daughter was still laying on the ground, crying in the dirt. She was so afraid she couldn't do anything other than blubber uncontrollably. So her words. They finally picked her up and cleaned her up a little bit. They took her in and set her down on the divan. It was two hours before they released my son-in-law's hands from the zip ties behind his back. They explained everything. And finally, after about three hours and a half, the event was over. The policeman drove away, smiled and waved, sorry, like nothing had happened. It was all night, 
before my son-in-law and daughter regained their composure. Couldn't even call and talk to us. They were just too shaken up. To this day, my son-in-law says he knows that had he lunged for his weapon, that both of them would have been dead. We read about things like that every day. We know that those people are always bad people, that they're really guilty. But that's not always the case, is it? They lived in that house for 10 years. Everything was fine. They built their life, and they don't joke about this. You know, we joke about everything, but not that. Without self-control, they would have both been dead. You see, sometimes self-control is more than just not making a situation worth. Sometimes self-control saves your life. Today we're going to talk about self-control, and I'm not going to put a definition up on screen, just a definition that's workable. Self-control is not allowing the emotions of the moment to determine your action. Sometimes self-control is not allowing what you want to do to determine what you do. See, there's different aspects of self-control, aren't there? Interestingly enough, the Bible has a lot to say about self-control. In fact, there's so many of the teachings on Scripture about Christian living and discipleship and all those kinds of things relate to the issue of self-control and what God wants. So what does God want from you? Well, he wants you to control yourself in any and every situation. In the passage you're going to read in Galatians 5, Paul was writing to Christians, Jewish Christians, good folk, just like us, following Jesus, building our lives, working our jobs, just living. And they were having some problems with self-control. Follow along with me if you would, Galatians 5, beginning at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, dispute, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So Paul is teaching Christians how to live like Christians, isn't he? Nothing really revolutionary here from our perspective, but in that early culture, shaped by ancient non-Christian practices, a lot of things that Paul was talking about were radical ideas. Not things of the flesh, but things of the spirit. So today we're going to talk about the flesh versus the spirit. 
The flesh is people doing what comes naturally. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's very physical, sometimes it's very emotional. The flesh is typically seen in a negative light from Christian perspective because Paul says that the flesh works against the things of the Spirit. So when you do what comes naturally, you need to check it. It might not be the Christian thing to do. It might feel good. It might get you what you want. But it might not be Christian. It's difficult for us to sometimes realize that what we want to do isn't good for us. You know, I've got a confession to make. I had this budding addiction in my life, and I'm not real proud of it. It's cheese balls. Now, I love cheese balls. Up until now, and I'm 64, up until this year, I have bought one barrel of cheese balls in my life. One. I'm kind of powerless against them, and so I've always been able to walk by the end cap full of those great big cheese barrel balls. You know what I'm talking about. And I could resist those. Well, the problem is, besides me being weak, is that is the breakfast of choice for frustrated parents trying to get their children to come to child care. So, every morning at least a dozen kids come bringing a great big baggie full of cheese balls for breakfast. We joke and laugh and they go, it's not worth the trouble. And the kids are happy, of course, because they got cheese balls for breakfast. Well, I see those cheese balls every morning. And over the years, I've been doing that now for 10 or 12 years, I see those cheese balls, Terry, and I think, oh man, those look good. But I've been strong. So, before the holiday season, I bought a big barrel of cheese balls for my grandkids because they love cheese balls. But you know what we forgot to do? We forgot to get those cheese balls out for the grandkids. So, you know, I can't let them go to waste. So, now I know these things aren't good for me. I can read the label. I don't even know what that stuff is, but it's not food, right? My doctor looks at me when I mention cheese ball. He goes, oh my gosh. Now, I know they're not good for me. But I am struggling. I told my wife this week, this is the last barrel as I brought it home this week. So as soon as this barrel of cheese balls is over, again, this is a big one, I'm not going to buy any more. Don't ask next year, okay? Sometimes what we want isn't good for us. Sometimes it's silly like cheese balls. Sometimes it's other things. In the early church, people were just living their lives, doing what came naturally, sometimes eating the wrong foods, Sometimes doing wrong things, sometimes doing what people do, sexually and otherwise. They were normal people. They were Christian, yes. They were in the church, but they were surrounded by a pagan world where people were not Christian. And they were okay. And no one worried about whether something was Christian or not. And this idea of flesh versus spirit really wasn't anything that came to mind. So they were just doing what came naturally. Paul heard about it, and so he wrote the letter to the church of Galatia. And the section that he wrote deals with the issue of not just things you should and shouldn't do, but the issue of self-control. So on screen are some of these things that we can do that God can help us with to gain self-control. Number one, understand the fallen nature of your flesh. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets this desire against the Spirit, 
and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Did you see that verse 17? That you may not do the things that you please. I have never been tempted to do something that I don't want to do. Instead, the temptation comes to do something that I want to do anyway. This is what Paul's talking about here. Sometimes the desires of the flesh are what you want to do anyway. It is your true nature. You're human. You're fallen. You're a sinner. Yeah. Did you know that those people who live sinful lives are us? Yeah. You. If you are looking at people and being surprised by their sin, you have missed something. Because folks, you are as depraved as any. Now, one of my good friends was a pastor of a Pentecostal church, and he and I used to get together a lot, and we would talk, and preachers have a distorted sense of humor because of the people that we deal with, and we would laugh about the sinfulness of our people. He would talk about the sinfulness of his people, and his was just a different demographic. And he said he was just trying to get his women in his church to wear clothing and keep that on during worship service. And it was funny, and we laughed. He says, no, I'm serious. I'm trying to get them to come dressed and stay that way. Because that was a crowd of people that they were with. They were struggling with addictions, struggling with rampant sexuality, and all those kinds of things. They were Christian, but struggling with what came naturally. I was a pastor of a kind of an upscale Baptist church and my people would never do that. They would lie to you when they sold you a vehicle and they did that to me. They would steal from you if they had the chance. They would cheat on their taxes and they would do those kinds of things. But they would never do anything that looked bad because that would be bad for their reputation. And we would laugh because everybody was the same. I mean, we were different in the way we, our sinfulness would manifest but everybody was a sinner, and we realized that. And, and I think that was good for us, a kind of an uptight Baptist minister and a, a very loose Pentecostal minister to realize that even though the outward things were different, we really were all the same. Sometimes even the good people are the bad people. I went with my son-in-laws to the Holocaust exhibit Friday morning. I don't know if any of you have ever been to that. It's, uh, you know, if you can get a chance to go, you should. It is one of the more sobering experiences I've ever had. The worst part of it, and, and you know what I'm talking about, it's down at Union Station. Pictures and artifacts from the Holocaust and Auschwitz in particular. The, the picture that was the most horrifying to me was this picture over in the corner. And it was of this beautiful villa in the mountains or it looked like it was in the mountains it was surrounded by trees and bushes and it was perfectly manicured it was a woodsy setting and it was a, a beautiful stone villa not huge but good size there was an in-ground pool and this was in the 1940s and there were children swimming women dressed and they were having an obviously wonderful day in the woods in their nice villa this was the commandant's house and family on the campground of Auschwitz. The guy who was in charge of everything was a loving family man. Went to church. Good guy. 
They had a, a poster up on the wall, and this was the horrifying part. He was writing a letter, I think, to his sister. I can't remember for sure, but he was writing of his experiences at Auschwitz. And this is the com commandant. He said, this is, these are the best years of my life. My children are thrilled. We want for nothing. The house is beautiful. The servants are wonderful. The food is great. The weather is wonderful. And they lack for nothing good. You see, the horrifying thing for me was in Auschwitz where they gassed over a million Jews and it was nothing but horrible slaughter, as you can imagine. The guy in charge was a good guy. This is what Paul's talking about. That's who, not him, that's who we are. Sometimes we hear about the evil people doing evil things. Sometimes we need to realize that sometimes it's the good people doing evil things. Never doubt the depravity of good folk. In fact, be careful how you use that word, good people. Good people do horrible things. Understand who you are. Understand that there is this battle within you, spirit versus flesh. I almost laugh. You know the old cartoon where the guy's on screen, he's doing something and he's tempted to do something and there's an angel over here saying no good to do the good thing and help these people and be nice and then there's the devil over here, no, 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 do this, hit them, do that. And of course it's a joke. But sometimes that's not too far from the truth. That internal battle within us, flesh versus spirit. The Christians didn't understand. They thought, well, I got saved, been washed in the blood of Jesus, got baptized in the river. I'm perfect. I am without sin. And James says, no. Paul says, no. You're still a sinner. Be careful. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't allow the idea that you're Christian to keep you from realizing that you're still a sinful person. That you still struggle. And God still understands you need to change. Always be aware of that battle, flesh versus spirit. Paul wanted people to understand that. Another thing on screen is a step to self-control. Accept your place as a new person in Christ. Look at verses 24 and 25. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If you claim to be Christian, it's because you claim the blood of Jesus has cleansed you, right? I mean, everybody gets saved the same way. The wording of our prayers may be different. But anyone in human history who is a follower of Jesus, received Jesus the same way. At some point, they recognized their sin and they realized that only Jesus could save them and they asked Jesus to save them. And again, the wording is different from culture to culture, but it's always the same. You have crucified your flesh. He used that term so you could make the connection with Jesus. Just as Jesus made the decision to allow his flesh to be crucified, so you too as Christian, when you receive Jesus as Savior, you made the choice to crucify the desires of your flesh. In other words, you realize uh, there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. Jesus, will you help me be different? Will you cleanse me? Will you forgive me? 
will you remake me? In fact, is in another passage, Paul wrote that when you follow Jesus, when you receive him, you are remade. You are a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become anew. That's what he's talking about. You're a new person. You have a new value system. You have a new sense of right and wrong. And this is exactly what we're talking about here. A new sense of right versus wrong. What is natural isn't necessarily the right thing to do. What makes you feel good isn't necessarily something that God wants you to do. This is where you have to not only study scripture, you have to seek God's leadership. And in any and every situation, you have to stop and think, is this the Christian thing to do? Not, is it what I want to do? Can I get away with it? But, is this the Christian thing to do? Now, I wish I could say that it's always a simple choice because the thing that is ungodly is always obviously ungodly. But it's not always the case. In many instances, that's up to you to determine what God wants you to do. The Bible does teach for him that knows to do good, but does it not to him it is sin. So it's not just avoiding bad things. Sometimes it's bringing good things into your life, bringing good practices. And you have to make that decision. And just as you had to make the decision to re receive Jesus and crucify the flesh, sometimes what you have to do, you have to own up to your faith. I'm Christian. This is what I will do. It's been interesting talking to my granddaughters and my daughter. They're working with the Afghan refugees. And they're beginning to make friends and work through the language bar barriers. And they've been working with them for about six weeks now. And they're beginning to realize that there are some value differences. And they're not fighting or anything like that. But they're beginning to struggle. Not, it's not a big thing. But it's obvious that these people aren't Christian. And they want them to know about Jesus. But they don't know how to go about it. But there is something different there. And that's the way it should be. Christians should recognize that non-Christians are different. Not necessarily to criticize them or anything like that, but to realize that we're not just one big happy family. People need Jesus. Afghan refugees need Jesus just like us for the very same reasons, right? Just like us. Just like us. One other thing on screen. To gain control of yourself, reject the tyranny of your emotions, verses 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things should not inherit the kingdom of God. If you think about it and go over that list again, these are all things that are typically done when people's emotions are stirred by desire or anger or jealousy or discomforture or something like that. So what he's saying here is, listen, as Christian... You have to be alert to how you feel because how you feel sometimes will determine how you act, right? And sometimes you're going to be very aware of it. I am really angry, so watch out. And then sometimes you're going to be angry and upset about something and you might not be aware of it. 
and your wife will go, what's wrong with you? Or your husband will go, did something happen today? And you have conversations like that, don't you? Or someone does it at work, what's, what's going on with you today? And things like this. And what we have to learn to do as Christian, as we struggle with self-control, is we try to discern how we feel. Because how you feel oftentimes determines how you act. It doesn't have to. Fact is, amazingly enough, you can control how you express your emotions. If you are really angry at someone, you can hit them in the mouth. Or you can walk away. Or you can have a conversation. You don't have to hit people in the mouth. You want to, I get it, I understand, and I can imagine the pleasure of some people's teeth falling in the ground. I mean, I understand that. So far, I haven't done that. I hope you haven't. But you see, the thing is, Christian has this concept of self-control, of controlling your anger. You notice he mentions dissensions, arguments, those kinds of things. He mentions sexuality. Human sexuality is another area where people have to control themselves. What you want doesn't determine what is right or acceptable. It's what God wants for you. He mentions drunkenness and carousing. Things that you want to do to have a good time. In our culture, it's acceptable, strangely enough, to do things when you're drunk. I don't know why, but that seems to be a thing. If you use drugs, just keep it under control, that kind of thing. And yet, the abuse of narcotics and alcohol and those kinds of things are clear destroyers of human life, and you know that. Nothing new there. 2,000 years ago, people were, well, they were us, weren't they? Separated by clothing and history and language, but us nonetheless. One of the things I've learned is I can determine, I can't always determine how I feel, but sometimes how I think about somebody will shape how I feel about the situation. If I like someone and they say something stupid, I'll cut them a break. If I don't like someone and they say something stupid, it's going to be more difficult for me, and so on and so forth. So how you feel is sometimes determined about something before the fact. So you've got to watch that too. But God says, I want you to control yourself. And so that list of things that he mentions is, these are things that happen when you're not doing what God wants you to do. You're not controlling your emotions. So for Christians, what we have to do is slow it down. Instead of acting right now, think a minute. Counting to 10, counting to 100, walking away, those kinds of things makes a huge difference. Jesus is the example here. You know, the scriptures teach us that Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In other words, every temptation, every tendency, every emotion that you've experienced, so did Jesus. And he demonstrated that yes, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through teachings of scripture, through submission to God's leadership, you can gain self-control over your physical desires, over the way you express your emotions, over the way you interpret situations. And you can live that life that Jesus lived. Jesus lived this perfect life, not just to be that perfect sacrifice for us, yes, but to show us it could be done. You see, James isn't our example. Paul isn't our example. Jesus is our example. 
because he was able to resist sin to demonstrate self-control in all situations. On screen are some words. Read these with me if you would. When we obey the teachings in the Bible and let the Holy Spirit help us, we are more likely to resist the pull of our emotions and desires and make choices that reflect our faith. Our relationships will be better. Our lives will become more stable. And God will be more likely to bless us and use us for his kingdom. People can be successful sometimes without self-control, but it is really hard. When you demonstrate self-control, you are a better person. Your family will be better off. You will be better off. Everything about your life will be better when you demonstrate self-control. We're not talking about someone who is uptight and rigid. We're just someone who has learned to control their desires and how they react in a situation. And that's what God wants you to do. Control yourself. To choose to live in a way that honors God. That allows scripture to teach you. That allows the Holy Spirit to lead you. And that life is the kind of life that you want. One part of this life that God wants us to do. Is when we get together to remind ourselves that we're Christian. We forget. We don't necessarily forget that we're Christian. But we sometimes forget that we are crucified with Christ. So today we share a meal, a communion. Jesus said whenever you get together, do this. Just to remind us that what we do here is because God has changed us, cleansed us through the blood of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is within us and we are different. We're not better than other people. But we're different than other people. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to ask that the deacons come and get in their place for this meal. The way we do this, post-pandemic, and I don't know what post-pandemic means anymore. I guess it means forever. I don't know. But we share this meal by coming down and we take a cup and you know the routine and it's got the wafer. Come down and and get your cup and wafer and go back. If you see someone who is struggling with the cup or struggling with walking, just help them out. There's no rush. So I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. And then we'll do this, all right? Join me. Father, again, we thank you for your presence. Thank you, Father. You love us. And so we love you in return. Use this meal to nurture us in our faith to help us develop self-control, to give us a willingness, willingness to follow you every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul writes the story, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He continues the story. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink and in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
We follow Jesus, crucified, and resurrected Jesus. This meal symbolizes that. That's why we do it. We're not hungry. I mean, you're not starving, obviously. And we wouldn't buy this as a meal for obvious reasons. It's not really very good. But still, it reminds us that we follow Jesus. He died for us to make us better. Better than us. And in him, and in him alone, there is life. Would you stand with me? Nate's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn. Every service you have an opportunity to respond to Jesus. Actually, you have an opportunity to respond to Jesus every time you move. Let me encourage you to make the choice to follow him, to let him have more influence in your life. There's a decision you need to make, and you'd like to make that public. You can if you come forward. Nate, would you lead us? Come and lead us in a closing prayer, please. Will you pray with me, please? And now to him who's able to keep you from falling and presents you faultless before the throne of God with exceeding joy. To him be power and majesty forever and ever. Amen.